Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the second Mythgard Academy guest lecture of 2015. We're very glad to have you all here with us this evening, and we are very glad to have Matthew Dickerson as tonight's guest. Before he begins, I have a few announcements to make, and I'm Serena Higgins. I'm one of the preceptors for Mythgard and Signum, and I'm the curator of this guest lecture series. So I just want to invite all of you at the end of the lecture tonight to go over to the Mythgard Academy website and take a look at the exciting things that are going on there. Fall classes are just starting to be announced. So one class has been confirmed so far, and that's Dr. Amy Sturgis's class on the epic appeal of Star Wars. So check out that class, read the description, watch the YouTube video for that class, and hopefully you would consider signing up for that. And then keep your eyes open for the other fall classes as well. And furthermore, the Tolkien professor is engaged in another initiative right now. Since the Riddles in the Dark podcast series has ended, he has started a new podcast series on the Silmarillion project, hashtag SilmFilm. So he and Trish and Dave are doing a um, sort of thought experiment or imaginative investigation of what if there were to be a film or television adaptation of the Silmarillion. So check out that podcast series as well. You should be sure to subscribe to that. And finally, I'd like to let you know who the other lecturers are yet to come in the series this year. I'm very happy to announce we've just secured guest lecturer number three, and he will be our special guest who is primarily a creative writer this year, and that is David Brin, the noted science fiction writer who has won major science fiction awards, the Hugo, the Nebula, the Campbell, the Locust, and has done sequel work on Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, and you can read the rest of his credentials online, but I'm very happy to announce that we will have David Brin as our lecturer in July. Then in August, our own Dr. Amy Sturgis will come to talk to us about The Hunger Games and Star Wars to get ready for her fall class and for the upcoming films. The films will be released this fall, uh, The Final Hunger Games and a new Star Wars installment. In September, again, one of our own faculty, Dr. Tom Shippey, will speak to us about myth in modern fantasy. And to finish off a really strong first year of the guest lecture series, the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geith will speak to us in October about the truth of imagination in the writings of Lewis and Tolkien. So keep an eye on the Mythgard Academy website for the announcement of the exact dates and times of those lectures as we have them scheduled. And we hope to see you all there. All right. Well then, we will turn this evening to our very special guest lecturer, Matthew Dickerson, who will speak to us about Lewis, Tolkien, and Wendell Berry, and Matthew will give you an introduction to himself. So, welcome, Matthew. Take it away. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this is a unique experience to sit and talk into my computer screen to live uh, people. I think the maybe the, one of the few advantages is that I can be looking at the camera and seeing my notes uh, at the same time. But it still feels um, very, un very different for me to be sitting isolated alone in my own little office with Shelob uh, looking over me and speaking to you all. And I also can't hear any of you, which is also um, very different for me. But we're going to proceed anyway. I'm, I am glad to be here and glad to be a part of this. And I am looking forward to your questions a little bit later. So I thought I would begin with a little introduction of myself. 
um, to try to make it as personal as possible. So uh, I'll just begin um, uh, a little bit about the presenter, uh, namely me. I have lived all of my life in the Northeast, um, with the exception of the first five years of my life in rural towns in the Northeast, uh, mostly in a um, grew up, went to school in a town of 800 people in Massachusetts, kindergarten in a town of about 400 in Maine, college in New Hampshire, graduate school in New York, and I'm uh, now at the point where I've been half of my life living uh, post-graduate school in Vermont. My undergraduate education was from Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. I was a mathematics and computer science major, but I actually took more English classes my senior year than I did computer science classes. And I think um, maybe the, the most influential professor was my freshman English professor from whom I took a class uh, on Paradise Lost, uh, learning that I'd have to spend the whole semester reading and studying Paradise Lost. And as a college freshman, Realizing I have to write five papers on one piece of literature terrified me. It turned out to be a fantastic experience with Professor Marion Singleton. And four years later, three years later, senior year, uh, she created a new class on fantasy literature at Dartmouth College. As far as I know, it was the only time the class has ever been taught, and I took it. It was a wonderful class. I went on to Cornell University and got my Ph.D. at Cornell in 1989. I will be talking a little bit today about technology. You should know that I am not a technology phobe or technology hater. I actually got my uh, PhD in computer science at Cornell University, but my minor area of study was Old English language and literature. I studied uh, Old English and medieval studies under one of Tolkien's um, former students, uh, the late uh, uh, Bob Farrell, and he actually sat in on my dissertation committee, so my PhD dissertation, which was entirely about computer science, actually had two computer scientists and one uh, member of the uh, English department, medieval studies program and archaeology program at Cornell. So those of you who are uh, not from the Northeast uh, may be wondering where I am now at Middlebury College in Vermont, where I have been since 1989. Uh, you can see my office uh, right right there where the, the upper rightmost arrow uh, points. Um, and so if you're, if you're a stalker, if you're watching this, this video because you're a stalker, I've probably just given you more information than I, than I should have, I suppose. Uh, this is down below where the red arrow points is, is the lounge just outside my office with my very large uh, window facing uh, west, facing across Lake Champlain into the Adirondacks of New York. And uh, just to the left of that, I don't know if my cursor shows up on the screen, um, but that I believe is the largest window in the state of Vermont. Our largest single pane of glass uh, in the state of Vermont. So um, backing out a little bit, I think that little arrow shows more, more uh, less specifically, I suppose, where I am, and if you want to drop back even further, I'm roughly there at the tip of the arrow. So uh, a little bit more about my background. Um, as I said, I've written a number of books about 
Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, about fantasy and mythopoeic literature in general. Uh, two of them, uh, the two on the left, Ents, Elves, and Eriador, and Narnia in the Fields of Arbol, were very specifically about environmental aspects of fantasy literature, and specifically about Lewis and Tolkien. My book on Tolkien I co-wrote with uh, Jonathan Evans, and my book on Lewis's environmental vision, Narnia in the Fields of Arbol, I co-wrote with Dave O'Hara, who was also my co-author on From Homer to Harry Potter. So I bring those up mostly uh, as a way of giving thanks and credit to those two co-authors. I'm sure um, many of the ideas I've shared today either came, I will share today, either came uh, directly from them or, or were influenced by them. So just a quick um, acknowledgement of their influence on my thinking and, uh, and my writing. Um, I'm also a creative writer. My graduate work in English at Cornell um, eventually led to the publication of my first novel, a medieval historical romance that was very much inspired by uh, Beowulf and actually was based on the uh, Finn episode of Beowulf. So that's the Finnsburg encounter. And then just last year, a year and a half ago, published a sequel to that called The Root and the Torque. And just four weeks ago, my first fantasy novel, which I think you will see on the right side of the screen, The Gifted, uh, was published. So there's my, I suppose, my little commercial uh, plug, if I say anything intelligent about fantasy literature today. Hopefully that finds its way also into my uh, creative writing as well. That's, that's as much as I'm going to say about uh, myself. So you know a little bit about who the speaker is. Um, oh, you should also know that I have... Uh, a wife and three sons. Um, my sons currently range in age from almost 25 and about to get married to almost 18 and just having graduated from high school four days ago. They are all lovers of Legos, and so I have a Shelob uh, looking over me as I give this uh, talk today. So let's begin with a little bit of a teaser. Um, I loved digging through letters by Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. They are very enjoyable to read, little uh, insights into maybe a less um, carefully edited thoughts, the sort of personal things I might say to friends or family members. And there's a wonderful letter that C.S. Lewis wrote in 1930 to his uh, close friend, um, Arthur Greaves, a lot of the letters collected from C.S. Lewis uh, are word of Arthur Greaves. And uh, listen to what Lewis writes here in this 1930-30 letter. It's describing a conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien. So we can assume this conversation uh, took place in either in the early, 19, uh, early 1930 or possibly in the late 1920s. Lewis uh, writing... Notes, Tolkien once remarked to me that the feeling about home must have been quite different in the days when a family had fed on the produce of the same few miles of country for six generations, and that perhaps this was why they saw nymphs in the fountains and dryads in the wood. They were not mistaken, for there was, in a sense, a real, not metaphorical, connection between them and the countryside. What had been earth and air, and later corn, and later still bread, really was in them. 
we, of course, who live on a standardized international diet, you may have had Canadian flour, English meat, Scotch oatmeal, African orange, oranges, and Australian wine today. Actually, I have, I have not personally had any Australian wine today, but uh, there might be some waiting for me downstairs in the kitchen when I'm done with this, uh, with this lecture. Uh, you are artificial beings and have no connection, save in sentiment, with any place on earth. We are synthetic men, uprooted. The strength of the hills is not ours. So I find it fascinating that uh, 85 years ago, Lewis and Tolkien were conversing about the importance of eating locally. Now, certainly they did not have the knowledge um, in 1930, about, for example, the tremendous energy cost that it takes to, sh to you know, ship food around the world. Um, but they certainly were aware that there was something important about this core principle of what, what's often called agrarianism. There's something important about eating locally. And uh, in particular, they're aware of that when we eat locally, we have a deeper connection to the land that we live on. It's one of the principles that uh, the great agrarian writer, whom we'll speak about today a little bit, Wendell Berry, um, says is central to, to agrarianism, that when those who raise food, who farm the land, eat the food that they raise, so there's sort of a connection between the raising of food, the taking care of the earth, and the eating of food, that we are more deeply connected to the land around us and we'll do a better job uh, taking, taking care of it. So the first thing I note from here is that Tolkien and Lewis were aware of this and thinking about this, this notion of eating locally 85 years ago, long before the modern local war movement had begun, long before writers like um, uh, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring or before uh, Wendell Berry was writing. But the other thing that's interesting to me about this letter, and it's what Lewis writes um, in the first paragraph, his reflection on Tolkien's notion, is that associated with eating locally, associated with those who are connected to earth around them, is a very particular type of literature, liter uh, literature or storytelling. What Tolkien and Lewis we're conversing about was that the very sort of literature that arises from a from a, a local eating practice, the sort of literature that arises from agrarianism, and, and I would say the sort of literature that supports and upholds that form of agriculture, is the literature of fairy. The literature in which there are nymphs in the fountains and dryads in the woods. That sort of fairy tale or mythic or fantasy literature is the literature that grows out of and upholds and supports agrarian agriculture. So they were aware of this in, in, the 19, in 1930, and of course both of these writers would then devote many of the next, um, uh, much of the next uh, several decades to writing that very sort of literature. This of course was um, uh, many years, you know, 20 some years before Lewis would write the Chronicles of Narnia, and it was uh, near the beginning of Tolkien's work in The Hobbit, uh, still a good decade and a half after his beginning of um, his Middle-earth uh, legendarium, but still in the early time, the early days of their writing, 
uh, beginnings of their creative work in mythic and fantastic literature, they were very aware of the connection between that sort of mythic, fantastic literature and at least the concept of eating locally, and that that uh, that key notion to agrarianism. And of course, Lewis and Tolkien both wrote literature with nymphs and fountains and dryads in the woods. Lewis calls them nymphs and dryads. Tolkien, of course, uses a different name. His dryads, he calls up horns and ants, and his well, his his nymph, of course, is is Lady um, Gold, Goldberry herself, the daughter of the river. So one more teaser uh, before we maybe look more formally at the background to this. Here's another letter some 27 years later. This is a letter that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote uh, to a young fan who, so it's, it's an answer to fan mail. She wrote him with a question about ant lives and Tolkien responded to this, uh, this young fan with an answer to her question. Writing about the loss of the ant wives and the question of whether, where whether they will ever be found again, Tolkien notes, tyrants, even in such tales as the Lord of the Rings, must have an economic and agricultural background to their soldiers and metal workers. If any ant survived, so as agricultural slaves of the tyrants, they would indeed be far estranged from the ants, and any reproachment would be difficult and less experience of industrialized and militarized agriculture had made them a little more anarchic. I hope so, I don't know. So again, another wonderful uh, passage, not only giving us insight into Tolkien's own um, sort of emotional attachment to the, to the incident wives and his own hopes that one day they will, they will, they will be restored, um, but more importantly for the point of this, this lecture, that more than a half a century ago, J.R.R. Tolkien was decrying industrialized and militarized agriculture. Uh, I think long before many other people were using phrases like that, were even talking about agrarianism before, uh, as opposed to or up against industrialized agriculture, Tolkien was not only describing it and um, decrying it, but connecting it, that sort of industrialized, militarized agriculture with the evils of Sauron, with the evils of Saruman, and as we'll see soon, even with the almost the near downfall of the Shire, and even you know equally interesting, he was uh, suggesting that maybe our hope lie in anarchy, <laughs> that our culture. Well, I, you know, Tolkien was not an anarchist, certainly. Um, Tolkien and Lewis uh, probably were were um, you know more. Excited about a uh, a uh, the opposite of anarchy, right? About a, a monarchy, about a, a country with a king, than most Americans would be comfortable with. Yet, when it came to the rise of industrialized agriculture, Tolkien suggesting, well, maybe we need to be a little anarchic to to in our resistance against this. Against this. So, there's our little teaser. I want to take a little bit of time and look at sort of the world view behind agrarianism, um, as seen in, in Wendell Berry and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and how that is worked out in other ways in the, their creative writing, in the, the novels of, of Wendell Berry, but especially in the fantastic writing of Lewis and Tolkien, and see some common threads 
between Lewis and Tolkien and their writing, which you know is not agrarian writing, um, and and yet there's a strong thread, a strong connection to what you might think of as the more explicitly agrarian writing of Wendell Berry. So, from Wendell Berry's uh, essay titled A Native Hill, this is uh, probably my favorite essay by Wendell Berry when I'm teaching creative nonfiction. This is my go-to essay. It's one of the pieces that I always assign my students to read. It's a wonderfully crafted uh, work of, of creative narrative nonfiction. And Wendell Berry gives an, um, a metaphor for the difference between agrarian an agrarian approach to agriculture on the one hand and an industrial approach to agriculture on the other hand. And his metaphor on the difference between those types of agriculture is the difference between a path and a road. And here's what Wendell Berry writes. The difference between a path and a road is not only the obvious one. A path is little more than a habit that comes with the knowledge, with knowledge of a place. It is a sort of ritual familiarity. As a form, it is a form of contact with the known landscape. It is not destructive. It is a perfect adaptation through experience and familiarity of movement to place. It obeys the natural contours. Such obstacles as it meets, it goes around. So a path, of course, is, is his metaphor for agrarian agriculture, the idea that you can form your agricultural practices to the landscape. Rather than conforming the landscape to, to your desires, you conform your practices to the landscape. That's what a path does. A path is something that comes out of knowing the land, knowing the forest, knowing the streams and the rocks and the trees, and bending the will of the person who wants to travel to the reality of the landscape. A path is rooted in the knowledge of the landscape. It goes where the landscape allows it. It goes in the place that works with that landscape. Rather than destroying the landscape, it follows the landscape. It adapts to the landscape. And good agricultural practices should do the same. The type of, um, the type of plants that you grow, the, the seasons, the amount you grow, um, how often you rotate crops, these should all come out of knowledge and the, and the agrarian principle, knowledge of the land that you are farming. How much soil is there? How much rain does it get? Are we trying to grow crops in the deserts of Arizona um, where you base your practices on one rainy year and then realize over the next 20 years it's not sustainable? So agrarianism is like the path. And then he goes on to talk in contrast with the idea of a road. A road, on the other hand, even the most primitive road, embodies a resistance against the landscape. Its reason is not simply the necessity for movement, but haste. Its wish is to avoid the contact with the landscape. It seeks so far as possible to go over the country rather than through it. Its aspiration, as we see clearly in the example of our modern freeways, is to be a bridge. Its tendency is to translate space, place into space in order to traverse it with the least effort. It is destructive, seeking to remove or destroy all obstacles in its way. So again, there's the contrast in Wendell Berry's mind between these two worldviews, the worldview of the path and the worldview of the road. The worldview of the path is the one he associates with agrarian practices, conforming the practices of agriculture to the reality of the land. The worldview of the road, on the other hand, the worldview of the industrialized agriculture, tries to conform the land 
to the power and the desires of, of humans. Um, you see this in Wendell Berry's fiction, in his, especially in his agrarian novel, Jaber Crow, which contrasts the hero, Athi Keith, um, with, uh, uh, I would say, the antagonist, um, even the villain, if you will, Troy Chatham. Athi Keith is described as um, a farm's farmer, but Oswald's creature and belonging, he lived its life, and it lived his. He knew that of the two lives, his was meant to be the smaller and the shorter. No more land would be plowed for grain crops than could be fertilized with manure from the animals. No more grain would be grown than the animals could eat. In other words, he conforms as a farm's farmer. He conforms his practices in his very life to the reality of the land that he's farming. This is contrasted with Troy Chatham, who began to call himself an agribusinessman. He would quote a great official of the government who had said, adapt or die, meaning that a farmer should adapt to the breakneck economic program of the corporations, not to his farm. He thought the farm existed to serve in a margin. And you are all here, I think, probably to hear more about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and mythopoeic writing than about modern agrarian writers like Wendell Berry. So let's now turn our attention to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's portrayal of the exact same two worldviews. Lewis is a little more blunt, and his introduction is wonderful. It comes in his a short book, The Abolition of Man. The Abolition of Man, Lewis con contrasts two worldviews. One of them, he thinks of them is the wisdom of the old, and the other worldview is the wisdom of modern man. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man writes, There is something which unites magic and applied science, while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And the solution is a technique, and both in the practice of this technique, are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. So again, three quick observations about this passage. First, he, can, he speaks about the wisdom of old. Right? In the wisdom of old, there is an acknowledgement that there is an ultimate reality. There is some truth or some higher authority. And the wise men said, our goal, what humans ought to do, is to submit to or to conform ourselves to this greater uh, reality, right? And we do that, the solution, the way we do that is through knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. We are a little more specific, I think C.S. Lewis would argue, this is, this is the wisdom of, um, of the Christian or the wisdom of the theist, the Judeo-Christian wisdom, although certainly there are other worldviews that would hold to a similar, to a similar idea. Um, but for Lewis, the, the ultimate reality would be the reality of God and of God's created universe. And wisdom is how do we conform ourselves to God's reality, to God's plan, and we do it through knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. Of course, for the modern person, uh, for magic and applied science, we don't submit ourselves or conform ourselves to anything else. Rather, we seek to conform everything to our desires. And the way we do this is, uh, Lewis uses the word um, applied science, 
or a technique. And another word that gets that shares the same root with technique that gets in both of these is the notion of technology. Again, for Lewis, the difference between science and applied science is that science is a is a pursuit of knowledge, of learning. So science is the practice of how do we learn about the real world. Applied science is what Lewis uses to refer to technology. How do we take that knowledge and use it for power? So again, the first worldview, right, is the worldview that Wendell Berry speaks of is the worldview of the path. The second worldview is the worldview of the road. But they're the exact, um, the exact same contrast that Lewis was making that Wendell Berry would make uh, several decades uh, later. And a little bit of a side note, one of the things that began me looking at the comparison between Lewis and Wendell Berry was a um, former Middlebury College student, as her senior thesis in England, in English, decided to go down to Kentucky and interview Wendell Berry. And she ended up writing about a connection between Wendell Berry and C.S. Lewis because Wendell Berry acknowledged in that interview that C.S. Lewis had played a significant influence, or the thinking and the writing of C.S. Lewis had played a significant influence in Wendell Berry's own uh, upbringing and his own thinking. So I thought that was very interesting um, when I was uh, the one of the co-advisors of that thesis. But on from that aside to a final comment, that launches us now into our discussion of Lewis and Tolkien, is the connection that Lewis makes between magic and applied science, or I think, again, more accurately, between magic and technology. I um, mentioned earlier, I believe, one thing that Lewis and Tolkien had in mind as a connection or even a motivation, if you will, for why they wrote fairy tale, fantasy, mythopoeic literature. Certainly there was something beautiful and profound and imaginative that drew them to that sort of literature. But first... They were both conscious of the connection between the fantastic, the fairy tale, the mythic literature, and agrarian practices. It's clear that they were aware of that connection from the conversation they had prior to 1930. But the second point is that both Lewis and Tolkien make connections between magic and technology. And in particular, um, they use magic in their literature as a way of exploring technology. In other words, in their fairy tale or fantastic or mythopoeic worlds, magic becomes a vehicle for them to explore issues of technology and technological power. Lewis suggests that connection here. Tolkien is a little more explicit in making the connection in many of his letters. For example, in one letter he wrote, By magic, I intend all use of external plans and devices, apparatus, instead of development of the inherent inner powers or talents, or even the use of these talents with the corrupted motive of dominating, bulldozing the real world, or coercing other wills. The machine is our more obvious modern form, though more, more closely related to magic than is usually recognized. So again, Tolkien makes the connection of the machine or modern technology with magic, and he's explicit in saying this is what he is exploring when he writes about magic in his created worlds. In another letter, he writes, But in a region, great work began, and the elves came their nearest to fall into magic and machinery. 
He's speaking there of the first age of Middle-earth and of the northwestern region of Middle-earth where Elrond would eventually uh, settle. Um, anyway, all this stuff is mainly concerned with fall, mortality, and the machine. Machine or magic is the vehicle for desire for power for making the will more quickly effective. Again, he writes, um, the machine is more obviously modern form than more closely related to magic than is usually recognized. That was a um, connection on to the to earlier part of the same letter. I think this would be a good point to actually take a minute um, and see if there are any questions, uh, Serena, if you'd like to do that. If you want to chime in, or I'm not seeing any questions. Certainly, so, so yes. I think I see a hand there. Anyone who has a question, please. Okay. Anyone who has a question, please feel free to type it into the questions box or the chat box, and I can read that out, or Matthew can read it directly. Um, so while the attendees are doing that, I have a question for you, Matthew. So everything that you're saying I see as being vividly operative in their works, in especially their fantasy and their fiction works. How does this play out practically, though? Because neither Lewis nor Tolkien followed an agrarian lifestyle. They didn't do what Wendell Berry did and leave yeah. the city and leave industry yeah. and go and live closer to nature. So are they more concerned with this as an ideology rather than as a lifestyle? Well, of course, both of them were, both of them were academics, right? So, you know, we, we can care about similar things but follow different life different paths through life and have different ways of addressing them. So I suspect that Lewis and Tolkien both addressed important issues but did it in a way that drew on their own strengths. For example, Lewis and Tolkien, no, they, they did not go out and follow an agrarian lifestyle, but they may have impacted the world in a far greater way through their writing than they would have if they had, say, run a small farm. And by the way, Tolkien's brother um, did have a small sort of uh, market-sized uh, farm, and and Tolkien and his children would go out occasionally and work um, uh, with his brother on on weekends. So Tolkien wasn't completely isolated from that lifestyle, uh, but but yes, it was not his own his own lifestyle choice. He was a scholar and an academic, and he he went where his like Lewis, where his real personal strengths were. Right. That and was of course, so that it had a tremendous impact on the world. I think I think Lewis and Tolkien helped shape the imaginations uh, of the world today that made it possible for, for example, the local food movement that's very successful in Vermont to take root. Mm -hmm. And of course, they appreciated the natural world as much as they could from their setting. And Lewis would go on those very long walking tours where he would spend three or four days outdoors as close as he could to nature. And he deplored the development of roads and railways that interrupted those tours. And, and you know, there's certainly we have to acknowledge there's a romantic aspect to, to this for both of them. Both of them, you know, uh, were born sort of right in the in the peak of the ravaging of the of the. English, lands, um, English landscape through the onset of industrialized agriculture. So I think part of it is a romantic response to this ravaging, but I also would argue that there is a very uh, practical uh, aspect to it as well. That, that they, they sort of they, they didn't merely have this romantic response. They were they were aware of the dangers of uh, sort of the parochialism that can come from that uh, also. Mm -hmm. 
Well, tying into our questions here of theory and practice, Kirsten Rodning is asking, what do you think about Lewis's thoughts on vegetarianism? Oh, you know, I, I none of Lewis's thoughts on vegetarianism popped to mind. Um, the only thing that popped to mind with the question is that Lewis was very often asked um, to write or to put his name on various tracks political tracks or, or other sorts of tracks because he was such a popular speaker you know in the 1940s with his radio show um, and he almost always said no to these requests because he I think his thought was that if he puts his name on lots of political tracks and lots of different ideologies it would water down his ability to defend you know mere Christianity but one of the very rare times that he was willing to do it was uh, writing a track that was an ant for an anti-vivisectionist society. So that, uh, you know, for example, Lewis refused to use mouse traps because he didn't want to cause the suffering of, of little mice. And you see that in that, you see that in that hideous strength and the practices of ransom to feed the mice rather than to trap them and kill them. Um, and you see that in the fact that one of the rare times that Lewis put his name on a track and helped write it was in this tract against vivisection, which is the experimentation, the cutting open of animals while they were alive for the sake of scientific knowledge. Mm -hmm. But I, I can't answer intelligently about um, his about his thoughts on vegetarianism. Because, um, well, she she follows up with one specific reference, which is actually the only one I can remember myself, which is in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader when he uses the descriptor vegetarian in a derogatory manner. Kirsten, I think that's in the list of adjectives applied to Eustace's parents, yeah. right? That they were vegetarians, teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at the food that the, that, that's, that's provided in the wonderful celebrations in um, Prince Caspian of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's always meat. And, you know, one of the first most memorable meals in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, for me, is, is the fresh trout that, uh, that Mr. Beaver catches out of the pond, you know, through sticking his paw down the hole in the ice. So, Lewis certainly was not a, not a vegetarian, but he would not have wanted the eating of meat to have come at the expense of, of causing um, animals to suffer in, inhumanely, I think. So, he, he did not... Um, think that there was anything inherently evil about eating meat, but did think that there was something inherently evil about um, inhumane treatment of animals. So, uh, shall we continue? Are there more questions that have come up? There are a few more. Would you like me to keep reading them? Let's take one more, and then we'll go on. Okay. Dominic Nardi asks, have you read The Hobbit Party by J. Richards and Jonathan Witt? And if hey. so, what did you think of their analysis of environmental themes in Tolkien's works? I have not read that. I've read some, many other pieces on environmental themes. That is not one that I've read. Okay. Well, we can save the other questions for later okay. if you'd like to go on. And please, everyone else, continue sending in your questions when they come to mind. All right. Well, let's continue. Um, I want to look at how some of this is worked out now in their fantastic fiction, um, beginning with with uh, Lewis. Um, I, uh, this is sort of a little bit of a teaser when I speak of Frank the Cabby as the first agrarian king of Narnia. I think that's probably a little, little bit of a stretch, but maybe not too much of a stretch. If you consider what were the, you know, what were the qualifications to being a king? When Aslan asks Frank, and of course we're talking about the, um, the magician's nephew when Narnia is first created, 
And Aslan says, you are to be the first king and queen of Narnia. And Frank says, but I ain't, I ain't no sort of chap for a job like that. Never had much education, you see. And then what does Aslan say? He says, can you use a spade and plow and raise food out of the earth? This is the first question that he asks him, which I think is very interesting. Can you rule these creatures kindly and fairly? And would you bring up your children and grandchildren to do the same? And if enemies came against the land, would you be the first to re in the charge and the last in the retreat? Then you will have done all that a king should do. Um, these are just sort of little, little hints. We'll get to some more explicit passages later, but little hints and little snippets of how once you begin to see that in 1930, Lewis was thinking about the importance of eating locally, the importance of uh, healthy agriculture, the eschewing of the industrialized and militarized agricultural complex. You begin to see little hints of this uh, throughout a lot of his uh, writings. Another one from, um, from That Hideous Strength, uh, one of the two most maybe explicitly agrarian works of his. McPhee, who interestingly enough is probably the only non-Christian character in the community of St. Anne's, he is the, the agnostic or the skeptic, and he complains to Ransom, he said, I'd be greatly obliged if anyone would tell me what we have done, always apart from feeding pigs and raising some decent vegetables. And a little bit later he also, uh, uh, or sorry, a little bit earlier, he makes the same complaint to, to Jane. He says, it may have occurred to you to wonder how any man in a census thinks we're going to defeat a powerful conspiracy by sitting here growing winter vegetables and training reforming bears. So little offhand comments, but it's one interesting to me that these complaints come from the one sort of, as I said, non-Christian non member of the community. And it almost suggests that, uh, that Lewis's answer might be that raising some decent vegetables or growing winter vegetables is precisely the sort of thing, the sort of activity that will defeat the work of the NICE. Turning over to the hobbits from the prologue to the Lord of the Rings. Again, think of this, think of this description in light of their comments about eating locally and about the, the destructiveness of agriculture, of a industrialized, militarized agriculture. Hobbits love peace and quiet and good tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favorite haunt. They do not and did not understand or like machines more complicated than a forage bellows, a wire mill, or a handloom, though they were skillful with tools. Growing food and eating it occupied most of their time. In other matters, they were, as a rule, generous and not greedy, but concentrated but contented and moderate, so that estates, farms, and workshops, and small trades tended to remain unchanged for generations. Again, another one of the principles of agrarianism that Wendell Berry speaks of frequently, writes about frequently, is the idea that, that we should not, um, that a farmer should not own more land or raise more crops than he can personally know and care for. So that uh, the, the healthy farms are the small farms where the owner of the land knows the land intimately, that the owner of the land is also one who works the land, is also one who eats the food that grows on the land, that those three things should be connected. Uh, owning land, working land, eating food on the land, 
And we lose that when we have these sort of large mega farms that are these corporate owned farms that are so large that one person can't possibly own them all. This idea is explicit in Tolkien's portrayal of, uh, of the Shire, of the healthy part of the Shire. He also goes on at once, uh, also from the prologue, speaking of the history of the hobbits, at once the western hobbits fell in love with their new land, and they remained there and soon passed once more out of the history of men and of elves. The land was rich and kindly, and though it had long been deserted when they entered it, it had before been well tilled, and there the king had once had many farms, cornlands, vineyards, and woods. So here we note that the success of the hobbits is not only dependent on their own healthy agrarian practices, but that the success of the hobbits is actually dependent on, or dependent on, the fact that the people who dwelt there before them had healthy and non-exploitive practices in how they cared uh, for the land. So we can jump now to the contrast that, again, Tolkien explicitly paints, um, and that Lewis explicitly paints between agrarianism, uh, again, eating locally, can, being connected to the land where you raise food, and this contrast between these two worldviews, the worldview of the path on the one hand and the road on the other in Wendell Berry's terminology, or the wisdom of the old and the wisdom of the new in C.S. Lewis's terminology. What brought about the downfall of the Shire, or the near downfall of the Shire, uh, in, at the end of The Lord of the Rings? Farmer Cotton describes it, and by the way, as a side note, it's very interesting that The Lord of the Rings begins with one of its heroes, right, being Farmer Maggot, who was said by Tom Bombadil to be full of wisdom, to know the soil, the great praise that Tom Bombadil has for Farmer Maggot is he's someone who knows soil. So it begins with a farmer as a, as a heroic figure, um, one who actually helps rescue the, the hobbits from the, from the Black Riders, and it ends with Farmer Cotton as another agrarian hero. And Farmer Cotton describes the ruin of the Shire. It all began with Pimple, as we call him. It seems he wanted to own everything himself, and then order other folk about. It soon came out that he already did own a sight more than was good for him, and he was always grabbing more. But where he got the money was a mystery. Mills and malt houses and inns and farms and leaf plantations. And it seems he'd been selling a lot of the best leaf and sending it away quietly for a year or two. But at the end of last year, he began sending away loads of stuff, not only leaf. Right? So all of a sudden we have two very clear things in this passage. One, you have uh, a farmer moving towards owning large amounts of land, far more than that farmer can ever personally know and understand and be intimate with himself. And second, the raising of food is a commercial crop for export. So the people who raise the food are no longer the ones who get to eat the food. That connection to the land is lost. And this is explicit, um, or made explicit by Tolkien in his description of the downfall of the Shire. Um, Hob is a little less articulate than Farmer Cotton, but he says also, all the stocks seem to have gone. We do hear that wagon loans of it went away down the old road out of the South Farthing over Sarn Fordway. That would be the end of last year after you left. But it had been going away quietly before that in a small way. The narrator also tells us about Mordor. Neither Sam nor Frodo knew anything of the great slave-worked fields away south in this wide realm beyond the fumes of the mountain. Now just to, again, a side note, as Tol Tolkien is a writer, um, in his choice of, of narrative voice, he rarely tells you anything that the characters, that one of the characters in the scene doesn't observe. For example, in the battle, uh, um, 
the siege of Minas Tirith were rarely brought out actually onto the battlefield. We see most of the battle through the eyes of Pippin up on the walls. And about the only time we're really out on the battlefield is when we're out there with Mary, and we see the battle through the eyes of Mary. So by and large, uh, Tolkien keeps the information, right, um, that you're given as readers to information that one of the characters would have observed. And yet he picks these very, very rare moments, for example, a fox wandering through the Shire to give you some additional piece of information. It's very rare that he does that. But he chooses to do it here. He tells you that Sauron's agriculture was slave-based agriculture. Right? So Sauron was, it was engaged in the militarized, industrialized agriculture. Tolkien is explicit. He breaks his own narrative rules to give his reader that piece of information. And when Frodo returns to the Shire and sees what's going on there, he, he is able to connect it to Mordor. Yes, this is Mordor, said Frodo, speaking right of the ravages of Saruman and the ravages of industrialized agriculture, the ravages that have been wrought by uh, what Pimple what, uh, has been doing. Um, yes, this is Mordor, just one of its works. Saruman was doing its work all the time, even when he thought he was working for himself. And the same with those Saruman tricked, like Lotho. So again, um, let's just step back from some of the details for a moment and go back to this notion of these competing worldviews, the road versus the path, the wisdom of the old versus the wisdom of the modern technologist and magician. Um, and look at it, again, through the eyes of the uh, faith of Lewis and Tolkien and one particular notion, the, the idea that both of them viewed the world um, as a creation made by a creator. In other words, both of them, both of these writers have a very important narrative creation story that's central to their um, to their understanding. And Tolkien, right, we have the Ainu Lindele, the story of the creation of Middle Earth. With T.S. Lewis, he, we have this uh, creation story in The Magician's Nephew. Wendell Berry writes, uh, the ecological teaching of the Bible is simply inescapable. God made the world because he wanted it made. He thinks the world is good and he loves it. It is his world. He has never relinquished title to it. And he has never revoked the conditions bearing on his gift to us of the use of it that oblige us to take excellent care of it. I would suggest that that uh, notion, that concept that Wendell Berry communicates here is his notion of the implications of a doctrine of creation um, are implications that Tolkien and Lewis are very aware of and that motivate what I would call their environmental, their environmental vision. Um, this notion that because the world is the creation of a good creator, because the world um, is good, because the world is loved by the creator, uh, that it is that those who live on it, that we his image-bearing creatures, we humans, have an obligation to take excellent care of it. And there are all sorts of implications of that. And we see the same in Lewis and Tolkien. Um, let me suggest five principles that you will see in Tolkien's Middle-Earth creation account. Um, these are all things that are said, hinted at, suggested at, um, manifest in Tolkien's Agnolindale and in the Valaquenta. Uh, first, 
it's very clear that the universe is the work of a divine creator. If you're from, if you think of the opening lines of the Silmarillion, the um, opening lines are going to draw a very close parallel, right, with the opening lines of Genesis or with uh, the opening lines of John's Gospel. Tolkien makes it very clear that his work, his world, his Middle Earth, his Ea. Um, is not an accidental byproduct of a meaningless universe, but rather the purposeful product of a creator. The created world is good. It has inherent worth and beauty. We'll get to back to one quote about this in a moment um, that, again, makes this clear. that The world is inherently good. It has worth. It has beauty. It's the work of a good creator. Uh, creation has a purpose. Um, part of its purpose is to bring pleasure to its creator. Part of its purpose is to... Uh, bring pleasure to those who dwell on the earth. Um, so the earth is made to delight, to bring to delight. Uh, part of Tolkien's creation myth also uh, is that an enemy seeks to harm the created order and its inhabitants. Again, we see the same thing with the White Witch in Lewis's creation myth uh, for Narnia. And finally, the mission of people dwelling in the world is to acknowledge the goodness of the earth to fulfill its purpose and to assist in its restoration from the harm caused by the enemy and thus to glorify the Creator. So these are five principles. Uh, we do not have time to look at um, the way all of these are expressed in Lewis and Tolkien's writing, but I do want to think about at least a couple of these, especially number five. And the notion of Christian uh, stewardship. Tolkien, of course, would have been very aware of where the word steward comes from, from the old uh, English, seaward, um, and in Tolkien's notion of stewardship, he lists three important aspects, and again, we'll get at these. One, the steward uh, is responsible to and has acknowledgement of a higher authority. A steward is not the highest authority but knows that there is authority, an even higher authority, the king. A second, that a steward exists for the land rather than vice versa. So if a steward is there to care for the land. The steward exists for the land, the land does not exist for the steward. And the third principle is that the steward should expect and long for the return of the king. Uh, this is why one of the reasons why I think we have the title of the, of the third book of Tolkien's uh, trilogy and why Gandalf, in one of the very um, few times he speaks about himself and who he is, gives himself the title of steward. So we'll get there in a moment. But first, a couple of the other principles where some of the little hints as to where we see them. If you remember from the Silmarillion, when the... Elves are summoned to Valinor to live in the West. There is a great debate, debate among the Valar about whether they should be summoned. Uh, most of the voices say, yes, summon the elves, bring them into the West so that we can protect them so they can be at our feet. And Omal, Omal who is described as among the wisest of the Valar and the one closest right, to Iluvatar himself. So Omal who in many ways is suggested is the wisest voice among the Valar, is the one who objects. He says the elves should be left free to walk as they would in Middle-earth, and with their skills, their gifts of skill, to order all the land and heal the hurts. 
This is right back to one of the principles I su suggested comes from Tolkien's and Lewis's uh, doctrine of creation. That viewing the earth as a good creation, that viewing it as having been damaged or scarred uh, by evil, leads to the, to the notion that they, that they both express in their writing that the image-bearing creatures of the creator, humans and elves and dwarves in Tolkien's, Tolkien's uh, mythology, that their very purpose is to heal the hurt that was done to the earth, to take care of the earth and to mend it, to heal it. Uh, and, and we learn in the Silmarillion that one of the greatest, that this summons, that removes the elves from this responsibility of taking care of the earth, that that summons is the cause of much of the evil that will fall in the first age of the world. Yavana also speaks, the, the Valley Yavana also speaks uh, of all things that Iluvatar created. All plants and all animals all have their worth, and each contributes to the, work, the worth of the others. So, again, the idea being here is that plants and animals are not merely valuable because of their usefulness to humans or to elves or to dwarves, but they are valuable in and of themselves. And in fact, because they have worth, those who harm those things ought to be uh, punished. So two more, um, two more passages about stewardship then, and this concept of stewardship, then we'll take another break, uh, take some more questions, and then I will uh, wrap things up um, with a final, final little section. Tolkien, certainly the concept of stewardship was very important to Tolkien. Most of the um, most of the important passages in the Lord of the Rings, I think, are, are interestingly enough dialogues. And some of the great dialogues uh, in the book are these dialogues between Gandalf and Denethor. Wonderful and powerful and, and very potent and very moving. And at the core of one of these dialogues is the, is the question of what does it mean to be a steward? Denethor, of course, has the title steward, but he's not acting very much like a good steward. And Gandalf is very aware of that and, and reminds Denethor, by using his title, by calling him steward, reminds him of what a steward is supposed to do. Gandalf, uh, speaking to Denethor, says, Well, my lord steward, it is your task to keep some kingdom still against that event, which few now look to see. In that task you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for. But I will say this. The rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or peril, but all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish. If, any, if anything passes through this night, it can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward, did you not know? So here's the closest great Gandalf ever gets to saying who he is. Who is he? He is a steward. You might say he is the steward. He is the steward of Middle-earth. But his, his reminder throughout the Lord of the Rings to all the characters he comes in contact with is that you also are stewards. He says out of the hobbits, you also are stewards. He says that to Aragorn, you, you are a steward. He says to them, you can't choose the time that you're born in. This is his repeated speech. You can't choose the time that you're born in, but you can choose what to do with the time that you are given. And look specifically at Gandalf's uh, language here. First, he says, to be a steward 
is not to rule, is not to seek power or authority, but rather to acknowledge the authority of another. And second, that a steward needs to care for everything that's in peril, for all worthy things. It's very interesting that he specifically says that a steward ought to care about everything, everything that lives, everything that grows, all worthy things, everything, anything that can bear a fruit or bear a flower or grow or grow fair. These are the things that the steward should care about. And stewardship, again, is this wonderful a metaphor. Uh, I think Tolkien and Lewis would suggest of what it means to be a follower of God or to hold the Christian faith that Lewis and Tolkien uh, both held. An even more specific agrarian notion of what it means to be a steward is in Gandalf's speech to the captains of the West um, before the final march on Mordor. Other evils there are that may come, for Sauron is himself but a servitor emissary. Yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What, whether they shall have is not ours to rule. And that statement, you know, what, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to make sure that those who live after us have clean earth to till. This is sort of, you might say, this is the central principle of agrarianism, right? To make sure that our practices ensure that those who follow, those who follow in the generations after us will have clean earth, clean soil, will be able to, right? Um, well, I, I, another way of phrasing this is, of phrasing this is um, uh, indefinitely sustainable practices. That our practices, practices in how we care for the earth should be indefinitely sustainable. That whoever follows us, however many generations they come after us, that what we must provide is the gift of clean clean earth. Clean earth to till and to raise um, food in. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've read The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I've lost track. Um, I don't know how many times I've read it from the beginning and the end. And I'm, 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 I'm sure many of the folks in the audience here as it sure is true of many of the folks in the audience here, there's this wonderful and also horrible danger of any time I pick up The Lord of the Rings and begin to read and look at one particular passage, I may, up, I may open it and be curious about one, one little scene, one little chapter, and I begin to read it, right? And then what we find is three hours later, we're still sitting there in our com comfortable chair or sitting in bed when we should have gone to bed two hours ago reading because we're engaged you know, in the story. So I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and how many times I read it entirely metaphorically. Right? I simply assumed that Gandalf, speaking to the, to the captains here, is merely using clean earth to till as a metaphor for something else. Well, certainly his words have uh, metaphorical meaning, um, and I don't deny that, but I would suggest, knowing what we know about Tolkien, that Gandalf is not only speaking metaphorically, he is actually speaking very literally as well. This is our great responsibility, that those who live after us have clean earth to till, that whatever we practice, whatever our practices are, are practices that should keep that future uh, in mind. We can't control the weather people will have. We can't control how much it will rain, how much drought there will be. Uh, but what we, can, what we can control is whether our practices will guarantee that clean earth. Although I suppose that we could, we could, we might suggest that um, our practices actually may even impact the weather of future generations. If, um, if what a lot of scientists are suggesting about global climate change is true.
but that's a whole other topic. So let's uh, move on. Um, before we conclude, a brief look uh, at evil, a brief look at how Tolkien and Lewis portray militarized and industrialized agriculture. Treebeard says of Saruman, Saruman has a mind of metal in wheels. He does not care for growing things except as far as they serve him for the moment. I might suggest this might be the very definition of, of evil, that you do not care for other things, in this case growing things, but you don't care about other things except in relationship to how you benefit from them. Um, I could say this might be the definition of evil. I might also say it is the antithesis of love. A love is to care for something else for its own sake. Um, Saruman writes, a new power is rising. Against it, the old allies and policies will not avail us. And the wise such as you and I may with patience come at last to direct its course to control that power. If you remember right, this is Saruman near the beginning of the story speaking to Gandalf trying to persuade Gandalf to join Saruman's side. We can bide our time, we can keep our thoughts in our hearts, deploring maybe evils done by the way, but approving the high and ultimate purpose, knowledge, rule, order, all the things that we have so far striven in vain to accomplish, hindered rather than helped by our weak or idle friends. Go back and look at that old quote, that whole passage um, when you have time, and then compare it to the words of the, uh, of the antagonist, and Wendell Berry's Jaber Crawl that I read from for you, um, that I read from for you at the start of this uh, talk uh, today. The the well, whoops, uh huh. Sorry. Rather than me summarizing it, let me jump to uh, a summary from T. A. Shippy from Tom Shippy. I, I think uh, I heard that he is going to be one of your speakers um, this fall. And um, I love Tom Shippey's writing. I think I've uh, learned more from his works on Tolkien than, than um, any, other, any other source. Uh, so very in insightful, and I continue to return to um, his numerous different essays and books about Tolkien as a great source. Secondary, of course, to returning to Tolkien himself, but um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good close second to, to rereading Tolkien as to reread what Shippey says. Uh, Saruman could then mean simply cunning mind, itself an old designation for a wizard and so, and so suitable enough. But behind that, one may see that for Tolkien, the old English word expressed very accurately a complex concept for which we no longer have a term. What does Saruman stand for? One thing certainly is a kind of mechanical ingenuity, smithcraft developed into engineering skills. His orcs used a kind of gunpowder at Helm's Deep, and later on he uses, against the ants, a kind of nipalm. The Sarmans of the real world rule by deluding their followers with images of a technological paradise in the future, a modernist utopia. But one, what one often gets are the blasted landscapes of Eastern Europe, strip-mined, polluted, and even radioactive. One may disagree with Tolkien's diagnosis, of the situation and with his nostalgic or pastoral solution to it, but there can be no doubt that he has at least addressed as serious issues, a serious issue, and tried to give it both a historical and psychological dimension, nearly always missing elsewhere. So moving on from Tolkien to Lewis and wrapping things up. Um, 
it's interesting when I talk to various friends about which of Lewis's novels they like best. Most of my friends who are philosophers most appreciate Paralandra, and it's probably my least favorite of the trilogy. I probably just offended several people out there. That Hideous Strength has always has always been my favorite of the Ransom uh, trilogy, maybe because I, I uh, have worked most of the last 27 years in academia, and I find Lewis's portrayal of academia chillingly accurate. Uh, I also find it chillingly um, um, prophetic. The the villains, the NICE, the National Institution Institute for Coordinated Experiments, um, also called the folks at Belbury, their um, one of their ultimate agendas or goals is to separate the human head from the body. Um, they have this. Um, you might call it a scientific plan, though it's far more than scientific, to be able to sever a head and keep the head artificially alive. The goal is to give that head, what you might say, um, the freedom or the purity to be a pure mind without having to have a body. That, of course, is, for those of you who are familiar with the um, this modern singularity movement that was uh, really popularized or might even really be, have been begun by the futurist and engineer Raymond Kurzweil. You can read about it if you're uh, willing to, to uh, engage in a very chilling uh, prediction um, in Kurzweil's books about the singularity, I think beginning with the, um, the Age of Spiritual Machines. Uh, Raymond Kurzweil envisions a future in which we will live forever by downloading our consciousness into a computer. So, you know, he, this 15 years ago when he was uh, first writing these books, promising this singularity, and, he, and by the way, as a side, Kurzweil does not see this as a chilling, frightening future. He sees it as a beautiful, wonderful future because we will be able to have a pure, free mind freed from our decaying, corrupted physical body. Right? That's his vision for the future. This is precisely um, what C.S. Lewis foresaw in that hideous strength. This is what the villains were trying to accomplish. It is the, the evil of that hideous strength, the sort of Gnostic separation of mind from body, a devaluing of all the physical earth. So Philostrato, one of the propagandists for the NICE, um, speaks of the ultimate goal of getting rid of biological life, of cleaning the planet. The forest tree is a weed, he says. But I tell you, I've seen the civilized tree in Persia. It was a French attaché who had it because he was in a place where trees do not grow. It was made of metal, a pure crude thing, but how if it were perfected, light made of aluminum, so natural it even deceive. Consider the advantages. You get tired of them in one place. To workmen carry them somewhere else. Wherever you please, it never dies. No leaves to fall, no twigs, no birds building nests, no mulch and mess. Why one or two? At present, I allow, we must have forests for the atmosphere. Presently, we find a chemical substitute, and then why any natural trees? I foresee nothing but the art tree all over the earth. In fact, we clean the planet. In other words, the world exists to fill our needs. We conform the world to our desires. It is the perfect characterization of that second world view of the road. I'm going to skip finally to my final two slides and open it up for questions. What is the alternative that Lewis and Tolkien would put forth. Um, Lewis's alternative comes um, comes through Ransom. This is not actually Ransom's words, um, but the words of um, 
a Denniston who's essentially summarizing Random's ideas. Um, speaking of Merlin, the great druid who comes back to life in modern England, uh, and turns out to be on the side of the folks at St. Anne's. For Merlin, every operation on nature is a kind of personal contact, like coaxing a child or stroking one's horse. After him came the modern man to whom nature is something dead, a machine to be worked, and taken to bits if it won't work the way he pleases. Finally come the Belbury people, who take over that view from the modern man unaltered and simply want to increase their power by tacking onto it the aids of spirits, extra-natural, anti-natural spirits. They thought the old magia of Merlin, which worked in and with the spiritual qualities of nature, loving and reverencing them, and knowing them from within, could be combined with the new Goetia, the brutal surgery from without. In a sense, Merlin represents what we've got to get back to in some different way. Right? So this is the, the, the voice of the Christian character ransom, the understanding of the Christian, Christian character ransom, saying we need to move away from this modern view of the world as a machine, as a um, random, purposeless product of a meaningless universe, and see the world as creation, as something with inherent goodness and inherent meaning, and then begin to treat it that way. Merlin is something we've got to get back to. We can't get back to it in the way that Merlin existed in the age of Druids, but there's something in Merlin, something in his view of the universe, if not in his practices, there's something in the view of his universes that the modern human must return to. And we conclude with Tolkien's um, words for another, from another perspective. What does it mean to be a hero? I should like to save the Shire if I could. There have been, there, there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. That was fraud near the start of the story. Near the end, he says, I tried to save the Shire, and it has been saved, but not for me. It must often be so, Sam, when things are in danger, someone has to give them up, lose them, so that others may keep them. Here's, I think, Tolkien's um, expression of what real heroism is, what real love is, and it takes a form of self-sacrifice. Uh, and, and this seems to be the suggestion that maybe more of this is what is what is needed in the world today. The imitation of Christ in the way that we live out as stewards in the world. So I've gone on uh, long enough. Let's let's um, open it up for questions. Hopefully some of them begin to pile in. Serena, are you there? Do you want to turn yourself Yes, I'm here, and we have plenty of questions, and one of them directly ties into what you were saying, even though Kate Neville sent this in earlier when you were reading the slides on stewardship. She said, the idea of stewardship actually sheds some light on Gandalf's words to the hobbits at the edge of the Shire, that they've been trained for their return. They need to steward the Shire, not just live there passively. Yeah, who, who said that? Kate who Neville that said that. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, that's sort of a wonderful passage, and, and, I, and I always, when I read that, I always imagine uh, Tolkien's voice uh, speaking to his audience, and sort of like, you know, this is what you have been trained for. This is why I brought you along on this journey, so that you will live uh, differently, that you will put into practice um, all the principles that you have been learning, so that, that Frodo and Sam and Mary and, and, and Pippin can practice in the Shire what they've learned 
from Aragorn, what they've learned from Gandalf, what they've learned from Galadriel and, and Elrond, and even uh, from Faramir. Um, yeah, so it, it's a wonderful statement of what it means to be a steward. Now, most of the rest of the questions had to do with the discussions of magic and magic and machinery, so we can go through some of those now. Kevin Hensler said, considering okay. technology and magic, are the works of Feanor considered technology in some ways more advanced than those of our modern world? So, uh, a deeper discussion of, of magic would have to take into account Tolkien's own description of sort of two different words that are often translated into the single word uh, magic. Um, the Magia and the Goetia. The Magia is a sort of magic that comes from the, the, the properties of the thing itself or the inherent strength of the person um, who is expressing uh, that, that power um, that you might say that that type of magic is, is sort of um, uh, inherent in in the user or inherent in in the trees or the land um, it is it is a tapping into a a strength that's inherent say the the healing properties of a particular plant um, you might say that that plant has healing properties and that there's something that's that's magic about about those properties the guisha is a type of magic that comes from enslaving the will of another the ultimate, I think, example of Guisha is the, the genie in the bottle. If you control the bottle, then you control the genie. The genie must do what you say, or it's some, some spell that summon up a sphere that has to follow you. Um, the latter type of magic, I think Tolkien would say, there is never any good use of. Any magic which comes from enslaving or enforcing your will on another is an evil, is an evil magic. Um, the former type of magic, the magia, I think, is a, is, a, is a magic that might be a little closer to some forms of technology in that they can be used for good or for evil. So there's some types of magic. Um, uh, for example, the creation of rings that can be used for good or for evil. And I think that's the type of magic that would associate with a lot of types of technology. The one ring, however, the ring of Sauron, that's a magic that its very purpose is to enforce your will on others, to rule. One ring to rule them all, one ring to bind. Um, this is why uh, Galadriel tells Frodo that he hasn't, he hasn't um, been able to use the ring or he hasn't had knowledge of the, of the elven rings because he hasn't tried. She says in order to use the ring you would have to get stronger at enforcing your will upon others. Um, so uh, I think the Feanorian type of uh, magic that, that he put into, for example, the creating of the Silmarils um, would be of the former type, a type of magic that can be used for good or for evil, a type of magic like Elrond's healing powers or like Galadriel's power to look into her mirror and see the future. I think, I think Fanor's type of power is a power that could have been used for good. And, and the Valar um, say as much. They say that... Um, that part of the tragedy of Fanor's fall is that he could have done so much for for good and, and beauty. I don't, I, did I interpret that question correctly? I hope so. I think you did, and he had a follow-up one in which he mentioned the rings, and he also men mentioned Jadis's deplorable word, and yes. Kevin said that he sees parallels in that to the nuclear bomb. 
Yes, I think um, you know. I think it, it that Tolkien's One Ring um, is not a sort of a product of a post World War, a, a post World War Two, and of the uh, of the atomic bomb. But I think uh, Jadis's deplorable word very much struck me as a book that was written after a war was conceived after World War II and conceived in the light of Hiroshima. Um, and I think maybe both Lewis and Tolkien would say that, that that's a certain type of power uh, that has no good use. It's destructive and, it's, it's, um, destructive and enforces your will on, on somebody else. But having said that, both Tolkien and Lewis understood that um, physical evil sometimes needs to be fought in a physical way. Mm-hmm. Ann Castro sent in a very similar question about Magia and Goetia, and she says that Tolkien used Magia to mean enchantment, and Goetia was power to overpower and manipulate God's world, and the practitioners of black magic disdain God's world. And she quotes, Enchantment is the process and result of a non-prideful sub-creation, a glorification of God's world, and a furthering of his desires for his creation. Yeah, enchantment is a good use of the word, and, and that's what I was trying to get at when I was talking about um, the Magia uses the inherent, uh, you know, the inherent power in the person, you know, um, uh, speaking the power, the, the, the power of Elrond to heal. But I wouldn't say that that doesn't mean it can't be used for evil. For example, um, the ability to uh, enchant and, uh, let's say, um, create a beautiful scene or to create an illusion. Say the, the ability to create an illusion could be used to, to make something very beautiful that would be for delight and for joy. It could also be used to deceive somebody in order to manipulate them. Uh, so I think there's an example of, um, of a power that could be used for good or for evil. Or you might say the Palantir. The Palantir uh, this ability to communicate, that would be an enchantment, it would be a magic. It would be, I think, of the first type of power. Uh, it could be used for good, it could be used, and, and clearly was used, um, for evil as well. The mm -hmm. black magic, I think, is simply another way of saying at the core of black magic is always enslaving spirits to try to force the spirits to do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. By the way, I would suggest that, um, by and large, uh, J.K. Rowling's portrayal of magic is cons fully consistent with Tolkien and Lewis, or 98% consistent, um, in that uh, most types of magic in the Harry Potter books are types of magic that can be used for good or for uh, evil. There's all sorts of spells, for example, that you know, either Voldemort's people or Harry Potter's people, Dumbledore's people could use. So there's, there's a type of magic that's like technology, that's like power, that can be used for good evil or evil. But there are certain spells um, that have no good use, that are always evil. For example, uh, enforcing your will on a house elf. Or um, spirit, uh, any, any spell that, for example, calls up a spirit enforces that spirit or that being to do what you tell that being to do. That's always portrayed as evil in the Harry Potter books. So I think actually uh, the Harry Potter stories are very consistent with Lewis and Tolkien on their portrayal of, of these two different types of magic. Hmm. That was a long time ago that nobody asked for. Sorry. 
Yes, we could have another whole lecture or maybe a discussion on that too because I have lots of questions about J.K. Rowling's magic. Well, one more on magic here from John Garth, actually. Hi, John, who's with us. Um, and his question goes even more to the foundation of all of this about why use magic in this type of literature at all. He says, if you're going to write about the machine, why not do so directly instead of using magic as a metaphor for it? Doesn't this literary treatment disguise the theme as much as it exposes it? Many readers would see technology and magic as opposites, and then he goes on to talk about the distinction between good and bad magic as well that you've been touching on. So why use magic at all and not just write against the machine directly? That, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I think I could also rephrase the question, why would any poet or storyteller or artist ever use any metaphor at all? Right? Why don't we always just come out overtly and talk about the exact thing that we want to talk about? Why would a writer ever use metaphor? Um, and, you know, there, that, that question I think we could spend a long time addressing. I think maybe the... the um, one of parts of my answer would be to quote uh, to quote Eugene Peterson quoting Emily Dickinson, which is to say we, sometimes we need to tell a slant. Sometimes um, that we understand things better through our imagination when we can see it in the form of metaphor than we do if we have to address the real thing. And I think part of the answer is that I think if Tolkien and Lewis had simply overtly started writing in the 30s and 40s. Um, explicitly about technology um, in, in sort of critiquing, say, the industrialization of agriculture, that they would, they would never have had a voice. No one would have listened to them. No one would have, they would have said, look, we, progress is progress is progress. Things are going to move forward. We need to allow things to move forward. You can't stop it. You can't stop the machines. Um, I don't think anyone would have listened to them. And I think it took a long time for them to... Uh, to reach people imaginatively, um, to shape our imagination so that we could then go back and look at technology and see technology in a new light. And that's always the way that metaphor and, and imagery works. Um, I think in the long run, it is a more powerful um, mm -hmm. as a form of art. But, you know, you, it's a legitimate question, and it's a question you could ask not just about this particular metaphor, but about, a, but about any metaphor. Why does the first psalm cost to meditate on a tree planted by a river. Why doesn't it just come right out and say what, what we're supposed to hear instead of letting our imaginations dwell on trees and rivers and leaves and, and fruit? So that continued answering that question would end up to spend, spending hours talking about why metaphor and imagination are, are powerful. Well, maybe with that uh, open-ended question to answer, which was lovely, maybe that's a good place to end. There were several other very specific questions. These were the more overarching ones. But perhaps if anyone wants to continue the discussion, you can put your questions on the MythGuard Facebook page, or they can probably email you through your website, right, Matthew, if anyone wants to continue the discussion? Yes. Um, I wouldn't go through my website and just go directly to my email um, at at uh, Middlebury College. It's my last name, Dickerso, without the N. Since I've been here so long that when I first came, they didn't allow names longer than eight letters. So it's Dickerso um, at Middlebury.edu.
Okay, great. Thank you. So if anyone wants to send those specific questions that you had along, I'm sure Matthew would be happy to dis to continue the discussion. So thank you so much for this lively and fascinating topic. And I'll just wrap up by reminding everyone of the things I said at the beginning. There are several more lectures in this series. So keep an eye on the Mythgard Academy guest lecture page for the dates and times and guests for those. Um, and check out the more time for questions at the end, but I think it was Sheila fault. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Here, poke her so that she swings again in the background, because that's very creepy. There we go. Very good. <laughs> um, and check out the um, the schedule for fall courses from Signum University, and also maybe join in in the Silmarillion Project podcast series. So thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. We hope to see you again at the other lectures in future. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Bye, everybody.